ready? Audience one. Welcome to the Superhero Ethics Podcast. This is Matthew. I'm one of your hosts. Hello, I'm Jacob. I'm right across from Matthew today. <laughs> this is a little weird. Yes, for the first time in Superhero Ethics Podcast history, something that historians generations from now will truly study, they will remember <laughs> this day. Because this was the first time that two of the hosts were in the same room. Yeah, forever. Like, yeah. We, were never, we never see each other in person <laughs> at any other point in our lives. Not at all, not at all. Although when it was Paul, he and I very rarely saw each other, being on different sides of the country. Most of the time we were recording. But we're doing this today because today we want to bring you a really interesting discussion. Um, I think a lot of people in the geek community have been really excited or at least really interested in the discussions around the book Ready Player One, which has obviously just been turned into a movie. And Jacob and I have been talking a lot about this movie. We both have pretty strong feelings on the book uh, in a lot of different directions. And and we actually were talking uh, as early as a couple of months ago about what was this movie going to be like and how is it going to be uh, accurate to the book and what was it going to change from the book and what did we want it to change and what did we not want it to change. And we thought that this would be a really interesting experiment because we're doing a podcast about this movie. But what we're going to do is we're going to start now talking about the book for a little bit and about what we are hoping for from the movie. We're then going to hit pause and Jacob and I are going to watch the movie and then we're going to come back and finish recording in a couple of hours. Um, this is a kind of podcast I actually was inspired to do because the guys on Marvel Cinematic Universe, which we're big fans of, have done a couple of times. So shout out to them. And and uh, I'm excited to give this a try. So let me just start by asking Jacob, um, when you think of the book Ready Player One, what, what for you comes to mind? This obviously is a book that is beloved by some, very criticized by some. Um, what What's your take on this book? So... So my, my experience with the book initially came from a coworker saying, hey, you're a geek, I'm a geek, you haven't read this book, you should read this book. And I went, okay. Uh, and I picked it up and he said to me, so he prefaced it with, his, uh, there's a bunch of references. And so the first thing that stuck in my head and has continued to stick in my head is that Ready Player One is about references. Yeah. Specifically about uh, 1980s properties, although not all of the classic 80s items are actually from the 80s. Uh, I, I use classic 80s because that's uh, something Ernest Klein uh, in the writing refers to constantly. It's, it's sort of a, a I don't want to say a mantra, but it's it's a, a common commonly used phrase yeah. in the narrative. Um, but it's those, and it's specifically the ones that uh, geeks nowadays, especially ones that grew up during the 80s, uh, really seem to enjoy in a vast majority. So, like, we're talking about properties like like war games, right? That, yeah. uh, would you like to play a game and the, uh, you know, the, the line toward the end of the film of um, the only winning move is not to play when discussing global thermonuclear war. You know, just a hard-hitting political commentary movie known <laughs> as War Games uh, that really, like, historians are going to talk about for years <laughs> to come and, and its cultural impact on our society. So things like that. That's what I think of mostly for Ready Player One. And it's not just movies. It, it references D&D, it references video games. Yeah. So um, I think of that. I also, and this is by no means me passing judgment, I also think of the word pandering mm -hmm. um, only because, again, I'm maybe maybe some of our listeners picked up on that already where I'm all like, these are the things that I enjoyed when I was growing up during the 80s. These are things that I'm like, yes, I know that thing. I like that thing. I have a nostalgia spot in my heart. Nostalgia is another word I could use. Yep. Um, but because these things are sort of thrown at me, being like, hey, remember this? It, for me, I sort of receive that as a, um, the writer's 
trying to slide me the secret handshake, and because I know the secret handshake, I'm supposed to like it more. Yeah. Does that make sense? And it, it does, and it's interesting. And this is a debate I've heard, because I will say, I, I have a lot of problems with the book in some ways, but I have a very different reaction to that part, because frankly, I just loved that stuff, because it did take me back to my childhood. And I, I think it's interesting, as you point out, people... They, they think of this, and, and the author describes it often as a book about references to things in the 80s, when actually I think it's more accurate to say it is a collection of references to things that kids in the 80s cared about. Mm-hmm. Like, it's constantly referencing Dungeons & Dragons, which yep. is actually from the 70s. It's yep. constantly referencing Monty Python, which is actually from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Um, um, and, and, I, and I actually reread the book a couple of days ago, um, and I finished it just this morning, getting ready for this podcast. And I didn't feel pandered to in that way. I, I felt like it it brought back a lot of the things I loved about my childhood. The thing is, it also brought back a lot of the things that I look back on now and find troubling about that time and about that childhood. Um, especially, and, and this is, I will say, is the one thing I am most hoping they change in the movie, the plot line of girl as trophy that boy wins. Um... And that's a plot line that is very common in a lot of movies. I mean, certainly from the 80s and, and, and up to today, a lot of books and movies. But I think especially in this particular trope, there, there's a way in which the book really hammers on the idea of this is a, a man, a boy, a man who knows only video games. That's how he experiences his whole life. And so he experiences everything as a competition with things to be won. And he approaches his entire pursuit of uh, the woman in the, in the book um, uh, Artemis, as her as her uh, online name, is the main way we, we, we know her. We later learn her name is Samantha. Um, <clears throat> she's the prize to be won, and the way he goes about it, frankly, is what I can see today as incredibly stalkerish, um, and and plays upon a lot of the kind of romantic tropes of the '80s. But a lot of the romantic tropes that that like recently I rewatched Ghostbusters, which is obviously I think to me a seminal amazing work of the 80s, and, and one of the few things that's almost never referenced in the book, which is kind of something he missed. But when I rewatched Ghostbusters, Bill Murray's pursuit of Sigourney Weaver no longer seems cute and romantic to me. It seems stalkerish to the point of being illegal. Um, and, and that was certainly the way I, I read that, that plot line in, in, in the book. And so that's, and that's just one example of the kind of things I was troubled by, but it's one of the things I, I, I'm really interested to see where does the movie go with it. I think, among other things, your uh, use of the word seminal there is very on point. <laughs> uh, the, the big uh, thing, and, and I, I think that parallel is very on the nose, or very correct, uh, because it's, it's the same kind of thing. It was this idea, and it was, in a way, you could almost describe the romantic plotline in Ready Player One as a itself a reference to an 80s story, a 1980s yeah. popular media story in how it handles the romance. We are pretty far removed at this point from that era, and we've grown, or at least I would like to think, we've grown a lot as a society in our understanding of how interpersonal relationships should work, be formed, and how courting should and should not work. Yeah. And yes, <clears throat> there's a very strong parallel one could draw between Bill Murray's courting of Sigourney Weaver, so that's uh, Peter Venkman and Dana Barrett. Speaking uh, of references. Yes, I, look, <laughs> look. We can't sit here and talk about Ready Player One and be critical of it at all without me throwing down my geek card and being like, I get it, guys. Yeah. I understand. You can't say, well, you just didn't get it. Look, Peter Venkman, yeah. <laughs> Dana Barrett. We can do it. Yeah. 
so anyway, uh, yes, that, that is parallel to me. Wade Watts, Samantha, Parseval, uh, Artemis, uh, romance, if you want to call it that. Uh, that was one of the parts, of the, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the parts of the book that I found most deeply upsetting. Yeah. Uh, reading it even for the first time. Uh, now I read it for the first time. I want to say a year and a half ago. So this is in my, you know, I'm, I'm not not a spring chicken. Uh, I have had some life that I have lived at this point, so I have the benefit of of some experience with life and some experience with the mentality of the character yeah. that we are presented from when maybe I wasn't quite so aware of how the world worked and how I should be comporting myself. But I just, it, it, it I hope that one of the things that was done with the movie was that they, the, and, and what's funny about this is that normally I wouldn't be advocating for this. Normally I am a fan of let's keep, as true to the original source material as possible, while making reasonable concessions for the visual media versus the right. versus the the narrative uh, paper book form, but in this specific case, because I find it so problematic, I really want them to change how the yeah. romance is handled. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because I'll say um, I don't know if you remember this, but one of the first times we talked about this book and this movie as a possible topic. That was actually the thing I thought we should do a podcast on, was specifically on what are the, 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 the issues around how true to an original work you should be, especially when you're updating it many years later. Because um, I'm a little different than you. I actually think I like when filmmakers um, deviate somewhat from the original, especially if they feel like they need to update it. And I'll, I'll, I'll give another example of where I think this really failed, um, but still within our, our, our superhero geeky uh, world, which is The Watchmen. Mm -hmm. um, the Watchmen is a great comic book, and I thought it was a fairly good movie. But the whole point of the one of the major plot points of The Watchmen is that it's written during the Cold War, from the perspective of the Cold War is the most terrifying thing we can ever imagine because it will never end and will constantly have the threat of nuclear war over us. The thing, though, is now when the time the movie was made, the Cold War had ended. Russia had fallen apart. We didn't have nuclear war. And so in some ways, to watch a movie that was telling us about how all the characters were going to do these crazy things because of that fear, for me as a character watching it, knowing the fear wasn't actually there anymore, it, I, I wanted them to update it. Like, as a better example, like V for Vendetta did a great job of doing that, where they updated it in that regard. And, I, and, and I'll say, I, I, so again, yeah, I, I feel like that's one that I hope they update and, and the romance to me is the most obvious part, but I feel like it also gets to this larger issue of geek male culture. Um, and, and we are two geeky men. We just, before we started this podcast, we had a half hour conversation about the magic community that yep. Jacob and I both helped to run. Because we don't just play the game, we help to, to administer it and judge look, it. Um, look, you can't, when you go geek, <laughs> you cannot go like halfway. You're, you're all, exactly. your cards up all day. Um, but I think one thing that make that I, I've always want, appreciated about, uh, about conversation with you and why I want to bring on the podcast is I feel like you and I both are both deeply immersed in geek male culture and also both deeply critical of it. Um, and uh, as an example, on the episode we did a couple of months ago about Magic the Gathering, we had somewhat of a conversation about the character of Jace and how he can sometimes be a stand-in for that kind of uncritical male, it, the entitlement that often comes up in male geek culture and the, the, the sort of as you were saying, the juvenileness and the sort of praising of juvenileness. Um, and I actually read an amazing article a couple of days ago that I, I will link to in the show notes 
where it said that one of the things that makes this book now really hard to read is Gamergate. Yeah. And that, that, that in some ways, like, and not that the book was okay before that and now isn't okay. And I still, like I said, I still think there's a lot of great things about this book. But that, that after Gamergate, it's a lot harder to look at some of the behaviors that this book heroizes as kind of like, oh, isn't it sort of adorable and sad that, that the men who are just obsessed with video games and don't want anyone to disturb their, their clubhouse culture, when we've seen actually how dangerous and, and toxic some of that culture can be. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I am um, very curious to see how the book um, will deal with, but especially I'm curious to see I'm very curious. I, 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 I'm sorry. I'm very curious to see how the movie will deal with because I want to see how it gets adapted. And I am. I admit that's probably my biggest concern: is is this movie going to be presenting our hero in a little bit more of a nuanced light that says not that they, that he's a, a terrible person, but that the culture he's in is more problematic than the book might have said. Right. Or is it going to just be the the popcorn candy celebration that the and again that is not intended necessarily as a criticism of the book but you know it was it was it was more of a like celebrating this type of person and the the types of environments the type of mentality that they present how they engage with things there's a, a very a scene that sticks very much into my head early in the book where they're having one of those one of those arguments you have when you're geeks where you're throwing down your knowledge mm-hmm. and they're schooling this other guy and high-fiving each other over how much it's they Peter know It's Peter Beckman, don't you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> look. <laughs> Go on. What's, your, what's the point? <laughs> so, what, what is the point when you get right down to it? No, so, like, they have this thing and it's clearly meant to say, like, yeah, they got him. They know more. This is a good yeah. thing. And, you know, looking at it as an external observer, I'm like, they, he said when the scene began that this was a friend of theirs. They are like treating him as the the heel of his particular yeah. story today. That's not how you treat your friends, or it's not how you should treat your friends. Uh, I wanted to get back to. I wanted to quick circle back to a point that you made about five minutes ago. Now, sure, though, because uh, we were talking about uh, being true to to source material, being true to media, and you said. Um, I'm going to paraphrase a bit, but you're like, you like it when, it when it's updated for the modern era. And I don't necessarily disagree with that point. But one thing I'm going to challenge on is when there is uh, an element in a story that is known and that is, it's from a given era, and now we recognize that's a problem, I feel like it, it, it spins my revisionist history dial mm. in a way that bothers me. And so in those cases, I actually dislike it because it, it feels like they're washing over. If, do you know what yeah. I mean? No, I can see like, that. Where it feels like they're washing over the problems that are in that media. And we're like, no, no, no. And so you're, you're reinforcing, potentially tacitly, potentially unknowingly reinforcing this narrative that, oh, it's really not as big of a problem for all the people who don't remember the original right. and are looking at this. So. I don't like it when in those cases specifically because I, I feel like we should always be cognizant of the problems from our own past. Yeah. And we shouldn't we shouldn't just go, well now we know, so we're gonna completely change things because of the and I, I understand how hypocritical I'm sounding because I'm all like I definitely want to change this because it's a problem. Yeah. But I feel like in this case it's a problem that's just so inexcusably bad that we need to we need to make sure that this movie that we're making for a book about 
for a book that's aimed at right. at geek males that is celebrating geek male things, we should be showing like this is how we do it these days, guys. And right. it's not and it's not that. It's not creeping on or trying to get information about where she lives. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess in some ways I feel like we're saying similar things because it sounds like you are wanting to... Cr- to it, you're, you're saying you don't want to erase the problems of the thing from the past, but you also don't want to preserve them. Because right. I guess well, what I'm saying is, it, to me, like the kind of revision I'm talking about is when the, the, the people who made the show Luke Cage said, you know what, this is an amazing character... But it's also a character that was written in an era of black exploitation, mm-hmm. and so we're going to take out the parts that are very exploitative, and instead make it a celebration. Yeah. Um. And and you know, and even mock sort of those outfits and things like that. You know, right. and I think that's more the kind of thing I'm talking about. Yeah. Where you can well, say right when they flip the script. Right. right? Exactly. Uh, so if we get so if one one thing I think would be brilliant if they do this, if Wade acts exactly like he acts in the book, and Artemis, because they can do this via the visual media. Artemis' reactions, because Wade is our perspective character, that we see as the audience, are actually different from how they were presented in the book. Yeah. And help us, help color it in the, in the, what I feel to be correct way. Does that make sense? It, it does. Because we get to have an eat cake. I, I mean, one of the things I, and, and we should wrap this up and start watching pretty soon, but I would say, um, one of the things that I, I noticed in the book is that if the book was written as though Wade was an unreliable narrator, it would have been brilliant. Because there's an element to which you can read it, and you can read it and say, oh, wait, you are so wrong. And the thing is, I just don't, I don't think that the author meant that. I think that the author meant for Wade to be a reliable narrator in that regard. And I think you're right. The movie medium can really change that. Um, last thing I'll say, and then here I say, is that having just given this whole long discussion about I'm totally okay with them changing it, I will say, given that what I loved about the, the book so much is the 80s nostalgia... I'm really hoping for the 80s nostalgia. And that, I would say, from the trailers, is one of the things I'm worried about because the trailers didn't look to me like video games from the 80s. I want to watch Joust in this movie. I loved that video game. And I know most people today will think it's a terrible video game. It's two-dimensional. It's ridiculous. I want to see things that, that pull me into the 80s entertainment. And I'm a little worried that we're not going to get that. I, like, I will be more than a little bit upset if Wade's first foray into this Easter egg hunt isn't going into the literal Tomb of Horrors. Yes, because that's right? so good yes, in the book. Exactly, exactly. And so, like, again, like, here I am saying, like, whatever, it's just a bunch of references stitched together by a loose narrative by somebody who's like, not the best writer in the world. But here I am going, like, look, I played through a couple of iterations of, of the Tomb of Horrors. Like, that was something that was like, okay, yeah, and he was all like, I read the manual, I know where everything was. I'm like, dude, your memory is, like, scary good, I guess, because, like, there ain't no way. But I guess he has, like, a billion hours to watch, like, a yeah. particular movie a hundred times. Anyway, um, so last point I could make uh, about the unreliable narrator thing. Uh, that That is one of my buttons, one of the things I really enjoy. And so half, when I was reading the book, about halfway through, I get there was something that happened uh, with our protagonist that made me think, well, maybe that is the story that we're telling. When he does the, like, he's working out, he's isolated himself from civilization, he goes yeah. to join IOI and do his infiltration thing, and I'm like, okay, that's going to be an incredible flip, and based on the way the book was being written, where the, the writing style in and of itself seemed a bit juvenile, uh, if that was our narrator, and our narrator is going to have a realization, I, I was looking forward to that story, and then I didn't get it, and I was 
more than but like so yes Faulkner and Ernest Klein are not the same writer so I guess I didn't like but I didn't know that at the time yeah uh, but yeah so so and it's funny because actually I remember thinking um, that scene where uh, Wade uh, does sort of go into the the company that throughout the entire book has been described as this evil empire. I kind of had the same thought as I kind of wanted him because it seemed almost unrealistic to me in the that they were so just pure evil, pure corporate monsters. And I wanted him to maybe find the humanity in some of those people. And he utterly didn't. And that was disappointing to me. And, and as I was rereading it this, this last weekend, this last couple of days, I, I, the realization I had is, oh, it's because the book is actually an 80s movie. Mm-hmm. Because in the 80s movie, the big corporation is always super and totally evil, and there's right. nothing human or redeemable about any of the drones who work for it. Right. I- IOI are just house slithering, and it's unfortunate that we never get to humanize <laughs> any of them, but whatever. Exactly. Uh, uh, and this is coming from two proud Slytherins who wish that um, Rawlings had, had, had uh, done a little more to humanize them, but... I, I cannot wait for a Harry Potter property where we have a Slytherin hero. That'd be uh, J.K. Rowling, if you happen to be listening, first of all, big fan. Second <laughs> of all, please. <laughs> yes, totally agree. Um, um, if Rowling is listening to this, then we have absolutely made it as podcast hosts. <laughs> but also, yes, please, let's have a, a, a Slytherin hero. Um, preferably one with red hair. Um, anyway. Who's not into, like, genocide and, and racism. and yeah, That too. Um, we're going to go watch the movie, and we'll be back in just a little while. And we're back. Um, we just got to watch Ready Player One. We had some struggles to watch the movie, but we did eventually get to watch it. Uh, it is now significantly later than we thought it would be when we were recording, so we're going to be a little tired, a little punch drunk. But we're starting out pretty optimistic because, I, Jacob, I think it's fair to say we liked the movie a lot more yeah, than I thought we did. I was, so i got to be honest, I was not expecting to enjoy the movie because of all of the many problems I had with the book that I assumed would not be would not be changed or corrected. And I was pleasantly surprised at how well the movie both did kept a lot of the things that I did like and made changes that really, I felt, made the story better and made the story um, something I was happier to, to witness, happier to, to be along for the ride. I didn't get like uncomfortable or annoyed at certain parts. Yeah. I so I very much agree with the second part. I think I don't want to spend too long talking about this, but I think this is an important point to make because it's going to tie into what we were talking about earlier in terms of fidelity to the original source material. I enjoyed this movie. It didn't in any way feel like the book to me, and it felt. I, I've, I've talked before about how I, I kind of apologetically enjoy this book because there's so much about it that is so bad. But I am a lover of 80, the 80s. I mean, I'm always joking with my friends about how, like, 80s music and 80s culture and how I'm such a, a, a dork and, and, and I'm older than a lot of my friends. Um, and this movie is not in any way about the 80s. Um, it, there's a lot of pop culture references but the world, especially the Oasis, feels very modern, very hip, very cyberpunk in a way. And I don't think before I saw this movie, I'd ever connected with why the movie, the book being so fundamentally tied to the 80s was so important to me. And, and part of it, and again, this is just, it is my own personal perspective, and that's something I want to I get to in a second. But part of what the book was so interesting to me about was it was about using incredibly high-tech to go back to a lower tech age. I am someone who 
and I admit it's my own failing still, but I, I don't get most modern video games. They are too frenetic, they are too active. I miss video games where you start on the left side of the screen and you run to the right side of the screen. And I loved the idea of a world that was all about recreating that, about going back in that way. And I think there was a lot of problems with that, and I, I, I was hoping the movie would explore that more, because uh, as you said, the book didn't, and that's one of the things that we didn't like about the book. And, and, and I'll, I'll say why in a moment, but I don't want to hear a response to this, but I will just say that that was, to me, that was one major disappointment, because if there's anything I loved about the book, it was that sort of homage to the, the entertainment of the 80s, not as just a couple of pop, pop culture references across a whole bunch of other things, but specific to that era. And this movie did not have that in the slightest. So I feel that what we were presented... So I don't even necessarily disagree with you. I do feel like what we were presented uh, was fundamentally different because our perspective is different. Mm. Because in the book, we are being told a story through the eyes of Wade Watts, right? And right. Wade Watts is hyper-focused on because he identifies strongly with the James Holiday character. He's hyper-focused on the same things that were James Holiday's love. And so we get a lot more focused on those elements, on talking about the, the movies and right. what's the mantra, movies, television shows, video games, and, and whatnot that, that Holiday was into and that Wade himself has now become into in his search for the Easter egg. Um, instead, in the movie... We are external, we are a completely external audience, and we're just seeing the world and taking it as we are. I was noticing a bunch of, uh, in the different characters and the different uh, character models running around, right. um, and not, and, and correct, not just from uh, the 1980s period, but all over the gamut, uh, all the way to close to the modern era. There were a bunch of Master Chiefs running around, but we did get the, the three battle toads yeah. during that one scene. Like, there was plenty of of instances of, like, little nods being all like, yes. Oh, sure. Right? But but I guess but that's... it's not the same. It is not the yeah, same. Yeah, I guess it felt like a pop culture salad in which the 80s were a part, mm -hmm. but it didn't feel like... Like, the fact that the first major challenge is this racing game that yeah. is so clearly high-tech, and, and to me that was... And again, I'm coming at it very much from that perspective of I miss the old 80s video games... That's the kind of video game I despise. I, that's the kind of video game that made me stop playing video games. And I have, again, that is 100% my personal opinion, and I don't think there's anything wrong with more modern video games. But that's, that's, when, I was, that's when I started to check out. And, and as we'll talk about later, there were parts of the movie that, that made me check back in. But, but that was where I, I was just like, I, I had to sort of say, okay, this is not the movie I wanted it to be, and that's going to be okay, and it'll be a different movie, and I can probably enjoy that, but... I did lose that. Yeah, the reveal that the first challenge was a race uh, that everybody knew about yeah. was such a significant difference that it did two things for me. One, it went, well, I'm disappointed. As I mentioned prior to us uh, checking out to go uh, to go watch the movie, uh, I had mentioned that I was really hoping we'd get to see the Tomb of Horrors yeah. and, and see what uh, Mr. Spielberg felt like that looked like. Um, and then I wanted to see... Uh, how they were going to make drama out of Parzival jousting yes. uh, with, <laughs> with Anorak, right? Like, uh, but no, that that is not what happened at all. And so there, for me, I was just like, okay, this tells me two things. It tells me, one, we're not going to get the exact same story. Mm -hmm. And so for me, and the second thing that, that it told me was that we're not going to be paying attention to 
and treating the same the things with the same degree of love. We're going to look at different things right. uh, than than what were in the book. The latter was all like, mm, okay, that's a little disappointing. The former actually made me made me engage more because I was yeah. like, okay, that means we are getting something different. Now I now I can like let my guard down a bit more and say, okay, okay, movie, what are you trying to do here? What changes yeah. are you making? And I hear that, and I want to talk about those changes. Uh, I just want to say one last thing on this, which is because to me, in some ways, the journey that I went through, I think, is really important. Addressing that kind of point that I mentioned earlier, that at one point we thought would be the main point of this podcast, but I do think is worth mentioning, which is that I walked out disappointed. But to me, it was really important that I wasn't angry about it mm-hmm. because I don't think, and this is where I, 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 I feel like geek and fan culture often really gets things wrong, is I think one response to this could be, oh, they ruined my childhood. They ruined my movie. They did. To me, that's bullshit because I think that there's a, that idea comes from a real place to me of entitlement and ownership of, and I know we're going to probably do a podcast at a later date that, that more goes into this, especially in terms of uh, fan fiction and things like that. But but it was really interesting to me to be sitting there watching this thinking, this isn't what I wanted to do, but that that's what Steel Spielberg gets to do, especially because the author actually helped write this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and Go ahead. That, that's such a good, I'm really glad you brought that up because you're right, there's this, there's this pervasive idea of this this possessiveness yeah. that especially people who, who identify as geeks or who um, are into what are considered traditionally geeky things, when they get into something, they they latch onto it. And, and I say they, I've done this myself constantly, so I'm not uh, being like all these silly people. I'm one of these silly people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, we latch onto these things and we... We don't want to let go. They mean something to us. Then we make them important enough to us that when they're altered, we perceive that it is as an affront to us. And it can it can be a very dangerous thing. And I feel it is important, as you point out, to be able to look at it and go, okay, separate the disappointment from actually feeling like you are being personally attacked. Yeah. That it's okay for people to to appreciate different things than you and to want to take things in a different direction than what you thought it should be. You're right. And I think that is such a good point because, to me, this helped me remember that people get to, to when, when interpreting something new, you get to interpret it as you wish. Um, and, and if someone doesn't like it, like if I, uh, there's a degree to which I'm always going to have huge problems with this book. But in the same way that, like, I have no desire to ever give Orson Scott Card another dollar of my money, but every now and then I'm going to want to pick up that pick up Ender's Game and reread sections of that book. I am probably going to keep a copy of Ready Player One because every now and then I'm going to get that '80s nostalgia bug and I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to reread those parts that I enjoy and I'm going to skip over anything about the romance because it's so horrifically offensive. <laughs> but I'm just going to get that nostalgia bug. And I'm going to remember that this movie is not going to fill that void for me. But it doesn't have to, you know? Um, and there was a, another, uh, a podcast I recently started listening to a lot that I um, really like. Um, Kevin Smith, his podcast. It's called Fat Man on Batman. Mm-hmm. And he did a great review of The Last Jedi. And what he actually said, he said, listen, there were some parts where he, I mean, he's another filmmaker. And so, of mm-hmm. course, he's always looking at it through that lens. Yeah. And he said there were parts in the movie where he was like, okay. 
the director is making a different choice than, than he would have made, but that's okay. That guy's directing the movie, he gets to make his own choice. And I, the way Kevin said it was so important to me because it really highlighted this idea of when you're consuming media, you get to talk about how it should be better, but you don't have a right to have people do the things you want to do. You don't have a right to have your one TP, your OTP appear on screen just because you think it should happen. You know, you don't get to feel like you've been betrayed. I mean, everyone gets to feel what they should feel, but I feel like there's something problematic in fan culture when we start um, the Arrowverse is the best example of this, where, I mean, the, the, the actors were getting death threats because they weren't doing the things that the fans wanted them mm-hmm. to do. Um, and to me, I, the death threat is obviously so extreme, that's a straw man, but there was so much more of that kind of thing that I feel like watching this helped me remember why we need to get away from well, that. Well, right, and it's the same... There was another recent example that, that was slightly less extreme than a death threat, and I'm, I'm unfortunately failing to come up with it because it's very late, and I've had a long weekend, and I'm very <laughs> tired for many reasons. But this is our dedication to you, yes, our listeners. Yes, I'm... Uh, Functioning on something resembling six, six, five, four hours of sleep. I don't even know. I'm I, what I'm saying is I'm not functioning. Yes. Uh, so, um, but but there was something similar that that happened recently where the backlash to our alteration to a change was was very strong, and it's not it wasn't really, really that big a deal. But it's it's interesting to me, and it's something I feel that we as a as a culture in general, and as as people who consume media and who love media, in specifically, um, should should be more cognizant of, and should actually pay some attention and pay some energy to. Okay, I'm feeling I'm feeling upset about this. Let me take a step back, figure out why. Really, really question myself. Why am I upset about this? And is it actually is it is it really something to get that upset about and sometimes it is sometimes it's they made a change and they took a they took a character who was a strong and good representation of of whatever whatever class they're in and they made that character into a complete uh caricature right right yes okay take a moment of analysis and go yeah i'm still upset this is still a problem if it's I didn't get the Tomb of Horrors in Ready Player yeah. One. Maybe go, all right. I mean, I'll give an example. To me, I, I can't say I'm a Dr. Seuss scholar, but I certainly know a good deal about Dr. Seuss. I love his work. Um, and and I, I, I've tried to have a good understanding of the kind of ethos behind it. The movie The Grinch That Stole Christmas was such a fundamental betrayal of all of the things that Dr. Seuss actually believed and cared about and put into that book in terms of how commercialized that movie wound up becoming and all the, the, the things around it. Point of clarification, do yeah. you mean the do you mean the animated movie? No, no, the or Mike the live Myers. Action, okay, the, the live, live action Mike Myers. Movie. So no, yeah, I, I think the animated No, the, the Grinch was Jim Carrey. Mike Myers was Cat in the Hat. Okay, yes. No, I'm yes. sorry. The, yes, the yes. Jim Carrey, thank you. Once again, just um, throwing that nerd card <laughs> down. Like, I have hey. lost that argument. I am I am not superior. Um, but to me, and to me that's, and, and even there, we can disagree, but I do feel like I can make a criticism of there's a fundamental ethos in this book that mm-hmm. is betrayed by the movie. Right. Whereas in this, I feel like not, you know, I, I think in some ways the points that this movie makes are better, but certainly are at least within the same realm that the book was making. So with that, let's let's. Kind of, but I'm really glad we made that point. We'll, when we'll get more into it in coming podcasts. 
But um, what did you like about the movie? In, ter- in terms of like, not sure what was enjoyable, but in terms of what what were the things that this movie did better than the book? So, uh, hot take. Going to alienate a bunch of our listeners, I expect. Uh, the movie was significantly better than the book, and here's why. <laughs> so, uh, the romance subplot was, it. they took a really damaging, really, really frustratingly tone-deaf romance subplot, and they flipped the script on it in many ways. Uh, the character of Artemis slash Samantha had far more agency throughout the entire story. Uh, she was mo- she was more proactive in a lot of their interactions and less the, the you know, um, person who's just out of reach that the character has to, like, keep right. struggling for and grasping for uh, the, the whole conquest prize to be one idea was, as far as I could tell, completely lost out of it. Uh, they gave her... Uh, they gave this character, they gave her the infiltration of IOI rather than Wade, which gave her, again, more agency in the story, a more important role, and set up a better dichotomy for the ending scene than yeah. what we had in the book, where it was basically w- w- Wade solves the world. Um, and uh, so so there's that. I really liked that. I also I, really... Let me, let me just comment on that. I, 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 w- I would mostly agree with that. I thought... I thought there was still a little more of the conquest, you know, girl's conquest than I would like. And there was a little more of the, you know, why she's actually falling for him. I find it hard to believe. But it was significantly better. I mean, the best way I can describe it is to say, like, as we talked about before, movies of the 80s, romances were often so blatantly horrible in ways that even to, that today we are just like, how can you ever put that into a movie? Mm-hmm. In most movies today, there is often a degree of sexism and misogyny in the romance plots that is bad and needs to be talked about and needs to be 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 dealt with but is nowhere near as blatant and over the top and stalkerish as it was in the movies of the 1980s absolutely to me the book is straight up as bad as bankman and ghostbusters yeah today i look at the romance and i went eh that's a typical hollywood romance right not an epitome of feminism but nowhere near as bad as it was in the book. Right, and, and, you're, and thank you for pointing that out. You're, you're correct to identify that. Um, part of it was, you know, I'm setting up a, well, if it's exactly like the book, I'm going to, I'm going to be upset. And so as it slid in, in the direction away from that, you know, suddenly I was happy. One, one uh, scene in particular that I really enjoyed, really appreciated, uh, mostly because I found it highly amusing, is there's this, there's this thing in, uh, in our culture where... Um, there's this idea of the, the fake geek girl, yeah, you know, and part of the, how you, how you test them out where you like, you ask them questions to prove their cred in this movie is Artemis is the one who's interrogating way to be all like, all right, do you have chops or are you actually a wannabe? Yeah. Are you actually not what you appear to be? And she's the one who's putting him to the test. And so part of what I liked is that their first connection, like, Okay, the very first connection is way going, oh, she's so pretty, drool, drool, whatever. Um, But the actual connection is when they're talking about this thing they're both interested in and into. Um, And she sort of leads that conversation with an interrogation that, um, and it's funny to me a little bit and a little bit sad that because of how our culture works, uh, the girl can, uh, the, the girl in a, in a girl guy, uh, flirtation or, or courting can do that. And it just seems like, okay, fine, fair enough. 
but we can't do it the other way around. And it's because of pervasive patriarchy and, and problems with toxic masculinity. So I get it and I understand. Uh, I would love to move to a place where we're not doing that to each other and we're, but, you know. Uh, so, so moving on from, from the romance subplot, there was, there was one other point uh, in, in how the movie handled things that, actually I'm going to take a step back and, and point out the one thing I, I liked less. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was one thing that they changed that was a significant change that I feel detracted a lot from the drama that was in the book. Uh, again, I'm not going to sit here and say that I thought it was like a very well-crafted drama, but there was a, a main character a named character that had lines that was on stage for multiple periods that straight up died. IOI killed this person. They sort of gave us a little bit of that drama by having uh, Artemis's uh, parents die. It was, it was her father. It was her father, yeah. Right. Uh, who died in indentured servitude to IOI. But he died off screen right. and he died as a character we never met. Right. Whereas in the book, um, is it, is it, uh, it's been too long, is it, is it Daisho Shoto? It's Daisho, and it's Daisho. the younger brother. Yes, Daisho gets straight up assassinated right. uh, by IOI, and it's, it's very blatant. And that was such a heel turn, and it, it was really jarring in the book, I recall. And I feel like not having that moment uh, detracted a little bit from the drama toward the end where we're trying to be all like, these people are really evil and they're going to ruin reality. Yeah, I mean, I think it was it, it was an interesting thing because, and here it's where it's like it's 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 hard to sort of find the right way because one of the things that was frustrating to me about the book is that <clears throat> there was so little time spent in reality at all. But I also get that that was one of the points of the book is to really explore the danger of spending that much time out of reality, <clears throat> and in some ways. I wanted the book to be more explicit with that. And you get one little line at the end. But even that is kind of wrapped up in the romance in a dumb way. And I feel like this movie, on the one hand, made more of a point of how dangerous it is to spend so much time escaping reality. Mm -hmm. But the characters actually spent much more time in reality. And there, there was right. a significant amount of the drama that happened outside of the, the Oasis. And I didn't really love that. Because it just it felt... Like, there's a whole long car chase scene, and there's a cut, and it, where, it, that just felt to me like generic action movie, um, in a way that, like, I was, like, part of the, to me, part of the wonder of the book is that everything is happening in the Oasis, and so on one hand, you're always feeling like this is so important, but you're also a little bit remembering at the end of the day, this isn't that important. Yeah, um, well, so, <laughs> what's funny is that the, um, because the framework of both the book and the movie, they share this, is that um, society has just, like, as a whole, has embraced this escapism, has embraced the, embraces the oasis, because the real world kind of sucks. Right. Um, and because of that, the fate of the oasis and what end of, ends up happening to it matters to a lot of people. Right. But at the end of the day, we're talking about a blasted video game, and people yeah. are hooked into it. It's because it's a, a full-on VR experience. There was a <laughs> an episode of I am going to so this, I think this is less nerd cred and more like I'm going to throw down my shame for all the scene <laughs> there's an episode of Sequest DSV oh dear god where uh, does anyone want to be a host of this podcast <laughs> <laughs> an episode of Sequest DSV where they go under the they, they like go through a time portal in the ocean Sequest was a weird show look I'm not going to say it was a good show but uh, I enjoyed it when I was younger um, but they go into the future and there are two people 
left in the world. There's there are two people left in the world, and their only means of interacting with each other are they're piloting these giant robots that are fighting in the city. But actually, what needs to happen is the two people need to be physically introduced to each other so they can repopulate the human race. And <laughs> we were getting kind like that's that's sort of the story that we should be getting is that yeah this this virtual reality is so immersive and people were so into it that they are losing touch with what really matters. Yeah. And the movie tried to make a, a point to it at the end, as you point out, and it's kind of a throwaway. Um, there was a point that uh, Artemis, earlier in the story, did say, hey, you need to spend more time in the real world, you need to pay attention to what's around you. But you're right that it was sort of shelved, but I think that's the meat of the, oh, yeah. of the, of the question of the movie, more so, I feel, than the book. Oh, definitely. And, 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 and one of the ways in which I thought the movie did something really good uh, especially because it addressed something that I, the second time especially that I read the book, I really was bothered by, is the individualism. Mm-hmm. In the book, they constantly talk about how I don't want to be a, I don't want to clan up. I don't want to be one of those clan members. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole thing about how I'm going to go and individually fix, you know, solve this thing and do it for myself. Mm-hmm. Which is especially interesting because in the book, there are numerous times when they get into real trouble and it's because of the clans coming in as clans fighting IOI and many of them like losing their avatars, dying yeah. in, in that world. The clans making incredible sacrifices on behalf of these individuals right. that they're able to secede and they're constantly putting down the clans. Yep. Which really bothered me on a couple of... Because part of what it... it um, and again, I'm seeing all of this through that sort of Gamergate, like, problem geek culture lens. But one of often my problems is I think there's a, a rampant, like, you know, the rugged individualism. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I'm going to do it myself. Does anybody and use physical bootstraps these days? I don't actually I'm think so. I'm literally strapped on boots. I know, I know. It, it, it's a metaphor whose time has come to die. But um, the... Which is in itself a metaphor, but anyway, <laughs> um, the the point being, in the book, yes, they all work together at the end, but there's no really acknowledgement of that being an important thing. And I thought the movie did a much better job of that. Um, Wade actually names the people he works with as his clan. Hmm. Um, I'll admit, there's a moment towards the end of the movie when he's he's rejecting the idea that he's going to sign the legal papers to take over the 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 um, the oasis. And I really hoped he was going to say no because I shouldn't own it. The people should own it. Like, did you have that yes, same moment? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I was like, please, yes, let's do that. Say no. The Oasis belongs to everyone. And, and I thought that's where they were going. And then they didn't. And I was like, uh, yeah. okay. And I was like, I okay. Guess, I, not, yeah. I guess these, this, the, I guess the high five are going to be our saviors. Ugh, why can't okay. we just save ourselves? Artemis saved herself. Like, Well, save yourselves and also... The Oasis as a public utility, you know, which is obviously, um, and I want to get more back to that, but I want to say one quick thing on this, is that in some ways watching this movie at a time when, and this is a conversation that started mostly after this movie was probably mostly made, but right now we are in the midst of a debate about Facebook and the role that Facebook plays in our society and whether that's a good or bad thing. And Facebook is not at all on the scale of the Oasis, but it's kind of the same thing in terms of the power it plays in our society. Mm-hmm. And there's one throwaway line in one of the scenes where you're watching the Halliday with his old business partner, Og, and Og says something like, things are changing and this is taking on a bigger role and maybe we need to set rules because of the effect that the Oasis is having on society. 
And I was just like, I really hope Mark Zuckerberg is watching this scene right here because mm-hmm. I couldn't. And I almost even wondered if that was intent. I mean, because we've, yeah. we've been talking about the problems with Facebook for a couple of years. Yep. We're just having much more of a conversation in the last month or two. But I, I couldn't help but see that and think about Facebook and think about, yes, there is this need to, when you build a technology that has this larger effect, to start to, to, to think you can't just keep it the way it is. And and, and to me, that, that moment of like the Facebook oasis uh, connection was really powerful for me. Right. Right, and I think we would be so. Uh, we're we're going to bounce around a lot on yeah. this because we're too tired to have uh, cohesive trains of thought. I, th- so this may be hard to believe, given how often we t- tangent normally. But we do actually have an outline for most of our episodes. <laughs> Today, it's anything goes. Nope. nope. Uh, I'm looking at Matthew's totally clips of the heart shirt. Tickles me every time. Uh, so, um, you know, I actually wanted to go back uh, to a point on the on the romance subplot again, only because. There's there's a thing, and it's in both the book and the movie that we'd be remiss if we didn't address. I feel um, that is still it's still problematic, and it's it's something. So like because I spent all of the words saying, "Oh God, it's so much better." I want to make sure that I say, "No, look, there's still issues." And one of the big issues is that uh, the character of Samantha has a birthmark on her face. I guess, and in um, in the book, I thought she actually had a. a I forget the name of the skin condition, but one that had, like, a large blotches. Yeah, it's described as covering, like, half her face. Yes, exactly. Right? And there's this idea, like, spelled out in the book because we're getting Wade Watts' take on it. We're getting it from his head. Uh, And in the movie, I felt like it was less heavy-handed, but I still feel like we were meant to sit here and go, oh... He's immediately being like, I don't care about this. And we're supposed to be all like, we're supposed to like stand up and clap and congratulate him for it. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm off it. Like, whatever. Like, I, I like, yes, you are still attracted to her and there's no reason why you shouldn't be. So why is this a story beat? Yeah. And, and to me, it was frustrating because I do feel like a story, like one of the elements in the book um, that I would have liked to see more of is the idea of how in the Oasis, people use their avatars to fix themselves in ways that are... And that there's something potentially really interesting to explore about the problematization of... That's a terrible word. That sounds like stupid accident. About the problems of that. <laughs> in terms of, like, how much is the Oasis then teaching us to strive for perfection and not to accept our own selves and things right. like that. And a story that was about Samantha coming to terms with her, her appearance versus her appearance in the Avatar, mm-hmm. fantastic. Right. But you're right. Instead of it being about her and her her feelings on it, it became, to me, it's the nice guy thing. It's the yes, like, look exactly. what a good guy I am. I'm willing to love you even with this. And yeah, he doesn't say Jack that. me with a spoon. You know, and again, in the book it's worse because in the book they do make a couple of, of references to her body yeah. Uh, I think they used the word Rubenesque at one point. Yep. And again, again, like, you know, if they approach it from an all bodies are beautiful standpoint, fantastic. Let's get away from fat shaming and, and, yep. and the like. Yep. But instead, it's supposed to be, again, like, oh, look, he's willing to love the fat girl. What a good guy he is. Or, you know? or, the, or the unattractive in, in any, like, not yeah. traditionally Hollywood attractive or however you want to spell it out. Yes, okay, thank you. Of course, yes, people can love other people. That's not a that's not a revelation, and you don't get a medal, right? Right. And even if it just if we'd seen what her face was like, and he just had a moment of okay, that's what she is, and the story moved on. Yes, perfect. Fine. My, that's all you need. Yeah. My problem is just with the way that they showed it as like 
And you could see her having this moment of like, oh, do you love me yes. for who I am? Deep personal shame. And then, no, I can't believe him. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I will say, and again, obviously romance is an important thing that we're talking about because I think it's, it's such a problem in the book. But, but here's one other thing that I, probably the thing actually, the moment in the movie that I love the most is in the book, there are two problematic romances. One is Wade chasing the girl and winning her. And the other is, in just as stupid a way, the idea that Holiday, the guy who, who founded this whole thing to begin with, didn't chase the girl and so lost her. And that right. that's his regret. And, and both times you have woman as prize and that if only you strive hard enough, no matter how creepy you are, eventually you'll win her over. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. the book is awful in that regard. Right. The movie changed a lot of that with, 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 the, with um, our, our heroes, Wade and Samantha. It kept the idea of Holiday having this regret over not having gone over, gone after the woman who he loved um, as a younger man. But it played it down a lot in ways that made it, I thought, a lot less creepy. And the thing that I most loved is, and again, I mean, this is all spoilers, but to me this is, I think, one of the biggest spoilers, is you get, for a lot of the movie, you feel like his biggest regret in life is losing the chance to have this relationship with a woman who winds up marrying his best friend. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the movie, it's revealed that the thing that he most regrets isn't losing her, it's losing his best friend. Right. And to me, to see, A, I thought that was such a good way of reframing the romance and not making it so important, but also such a wonderful way of honoring male-male friendship. Right. Which, especially because we talked about how in the book... The only instances of male friendship that we see is the constant put-down culture of, like, I'm expressing you're my friend by telling you what a shitty guy you are. To have this moment of his lifelong regret was losing his platonic male friend, I I teared up a little bit. And I, I, for the most part, I thought this was a fun movie. I didn't think it was a very good movie. I thought it was an okay action-adventure that's much better than a bad book. But that moment really got to me. Because that was such a nice flip of the... My one true regret is losing the woman who I barely knew. Right. You know? Right. I'm, I will take the the action-adventure and, and car chase scenes over the complete lack of tension and instantaneous solving of <laughs> every problem ever that we get in the book. Legit. Uh, so, like, we could just hack it. It's all computers, so we can always hack it. There was some hacking. Uh, yeah. But, like, I like that they doled it out. Uh, that's another thing. That's, going back to a point you made earlier... Uh, that I really liked and wanted to circle back around is this idea of of sort of squashing the like the savior individualism bit and going with the you know the, the stronger together the the yeah. more um, uh, the more teamwork centric uh, messaging and the way they doled out who did what during the book rather than making it all about Wade. Um, first of all, well, they kind of got to do that because we're not always through Wade's eyes, so we get to see other people doing things. Yeah, but. Um, it's just a, such a better story that collectively they achieved what individually none of them could. Yeah. Uh, and I just, it makes it so that even when there's those moments where they like quick shortcut it, oh, H did the, H hacked uh, Halliday's rig. I also like that they actually used the word rig. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so H hacked Halliday's rig uh, rather than Wade doing it. Like, yes, it was a throwaway thing. It was still just all like, yeah, we managed to do it. And here's our ruse, and aren't we so clever? But because it wasn't Wade doing everything, yeah. uh, it was it was much more palatable. It was a team. I mean, in some ways, exactly. uh, as we said, there was no Tomb of Horrors, and there was 
very little reference to Dungeons and Dragons or role playing no games, games in general. Well, there was no very little about role playing games mm-hmm. in this movie, even though it's a big part of the book. Yeah. And yet, in, in essence, they wind up being a party, right? In a way that I really like. Yes. Um, and and for me, connected to that also is. I, I often have get into arguments with people because I think there is this this idea often that people love to bandy about to say that the internet is destroying communication, that the internet is drawing us all apart, and that no one ever really talks to each other anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think there is some truth to that in that there is a danger of losing yourself entirely in the internet. But I also have long been a believer that in a lot of ways the internet allows communication to be a lot easier for people who are not ridiculously socially adept. And that that's actually a very powerful thing. And that there's value in saying people can have relationships that are primarily online, but that they still can have, they might, it's important to not think of them in the same terms as other relationships, but they still can have real value. And that um, when I was doing counseling in, in, in my former career as a, uh, as a, a, a pastor, I had some people who really needed to talk to me every now and then, and the way they wanted to talk to me was by instant messenger. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to some of my uh, my older colleagues, and they would say, like, oh, you can't allow that. You have to push them to, to have an in-person communication, or you're letting them hide. And I, I realized, no, this was the way these people needed to communicate. And, and, and I see these people, I'm often that person. Right. I will often... Um, you know, in sometimes some of the most important conversations I have, I would much rather they be in an electronic format than a phone conversation, for example. Right. Um, in person is often better, but if, right. if the choice is phone or electronic, I'm probably choosing electronic. Right. Um, and, and for that reason, I liked that this movie, while obviously talking about the dangers of going too far into losing yourself in, in an electronic format, also still honored the idea that you can build relationships through the internet that still have weight and power and importance. Right. And I loved, so the reveal of H as, as, you know, H, H's avatar in the, in the game is, you know, male, sensibly male, like, uh, and there was a reveal in the book that it turns out that it's actually a woman who's playing the character and they're modulating their voice. Right. Uh, the reveal in the book was, a lot more of a, like, Wade actually gets upset with Ace, like, you lied to me, but yeah. I'm gonna forgive you again, you want a freaking medal for being a reasonable human being. Uh, it, it's done in a very transphobic, I mean, there's yes, all sorts of problems right, with yeah, how it's done yeah, in the yeah, book, right. but yeah, I think in the movie, it's not, because in the book, H appears as a person, yep. literally like the person, and it's male, and also white. Right. Um, in where and then you reveal realize that it's a black woman who is the the person playing that avatar. Right. In the movie, it is male, but it's also a like robot mecha orc. Right. Yes. You know, it's, like... it, it, it is something that is so far divorced, and, and to me, it's more like, yeah, you play Skyrim, you play whatever gender you want to play. You right. Play, exactly. And, and and to me, there was so much less of a like. In the book, there's sort of an assumption of that there has to be a same connection of your gender to your of your player to your avatar yep. whereas here it was so different and also as you said the reveal was handled so differently i also thought it was important that the the care i mean it is a black mecha or it is a, is a um a male mecha orc so to say it has really a race doesn't make any sense right but but the way the character interacts and the language used when you discover that the the person playing it is, is a black woman that's that the race is not a surprise and i really like that part sure um so i i mean Yes and no. So, like, 
I think it's better for them not to have been to to not um, have H have like just a, a Caucasian avatar only because you know there's that whole like there's that whole scene that they they where H got or whatever H where Wade got stagger shocked and in, in the movie the way they handle it is H says says a line that H had said in the game and Wade's all like a little confused looking and then she says another one. And he's like, H? And it's just this, like, my friend! Yeah. And that's, like, it. It was so so much better better. done. And again, just another another example of just, like, positive friendships between people. And there was not even a, like, there's not even a moment where they're all like, well, let's address in, yeah. Yeah. Like, even though one of the lines that she used to remind, to low hint, I'm H was mentioning that hey Artemis could actually be played by some guy named Chuck in your in a basement. Yeah. Right. But like, there's a hint dropping there that's yeah. well done. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I I feel like overall, um, it, it's funny because I think when we were planning out this podcast, we were thinking, okay, <laughs> we, buckle up, buckle up, because we want to spend an hour ripping apart geek male culture, and we'll use the movie as a jumping off point into the book and all the terrible things. And I remember walking out, I don't mean, remember, it was, it was an hour ago, but I walked out of that movie thinking, what are we going to talk about? Because, um, and, and I think we found a lot to talk about, and this has been good, but it, it well, the, to me, I'm very happily surprised, because I had such a negative reaction to so much of the book. I Not, not as much as you do, and I think that's important, mm-hmm. and I, and I want to sort of stand up for those people who still love the book, because I will say, like, to me, there are a lot of parts of the book that I enjoy. Um, you know, there are a lot of parts that I find really problematic, but it, it, um, (laughs) the joke I kept thinking to myself is like, you know, Chick-fil-A makes a fantastic chicken sandwich. I can't bring myself to eat it for the most part anymore. I do every now and then have a moment of weakness, but for the most part, I can't, I can't bring myself to eat it because I know what Chick-fil-A supports and I don't want to have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that when you bite into a chicken sandwich, you don't taste that. You don't taste the horribleness. Um, you, you, but, you you don't tri- you don't taste homophobia. Yeah, no, it, it I, tastes really bad. I, I wish I did. I, and maybe I'd be a better person, but I do still think those are delicious sandwiches. I just try to make sure I never have them because they support terrible things. And the once or twice a year I do, I give a you know I give a donation to an organization to, to offset the money I spend. Sure, sure. But my point being, there there's a disconnect. Whereas like when I read the book. I can enjoy parts of Ready Player One, but I'm always going to have that that taste in my mouth because you yes. can't read the book and not read the misogyny, right. and not read the other parts. Um, but I but I feel like they did a pretty good job in this movie of, of pulling those out. And to, they, they didn't erase all of it. To a point you made earlier, they didn't erase all of it. Yeah. And some of it is because it's uh, part of, and this is this is just part of the the American culture in general, not not specifically with. With geeks or ever or or whatever subsets, um, but like it, it was, it's still, it's still aimed toward American audiences, and that still means something. And some of what that means is still a problem. Yeah. But it was a lot closer to the line of you know actually doing good and being responsible and ethical with with your media and the messages that you're perfect, you're uh, giving to your audience than. Than what Ernest Klein's original book did. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, some of it, I think, was maybe unintentional. He just wanted to celebrate things that he loved. I don't want to presume on behalf of the author. Um, 
And I also wanted to make a comment before we get too far into this. We, we've made a lot of, of comments about uh, problems with geek male culture, problems with geek male mindsets, etc. I want to make sure our listeners understand we're not sitting here saying, we're not sitting here like trying to demonize geek men. All we really want to do is just identify that um, we we wish for our, us to be more cognizant, more self-aware of how we're interacting with each other and also with these media and the kinds of ideas that they present to us that can make uh, that that can sort of influence how we interact. Yeah. And we need to be cognizant of when we see these things. Is this creating the idea in my head that something is acceptable that isn't acceptable? And that's really what we're trying to aim toward. And I just wanted to take a moment. No, I think that's important. I think because I know we've come across as very critical and probably in a lot of the similar ways we did when, or at least especially I did, when we did that Magic the Gathering mm-hmm. podcast. Yep. And I, I've commented before that, that to me, the, the Jay story in that and the, and the stories in the book, they bring up very similar stuff. But I think it's... It, it's interesting. So I, I've said before on this podcast that I'm Christian, and I am obviously that's not something I bring into this discussion often because that's really separate. But I often feel like when I I am very deeply critical of Christianity, in a way that a lot of my non-Christian friends are as well, and I think the critiques are very well valid. I I make them as well. But for me, it's important that I'm making those critiques from someone within the institution who loves a lot about the institution, who's trying to make it better. Yeah, and I feel like. There is still a point to which when I read someone who's very outside the culture being critical of geek, geek culture, and especially geek male culture, I bristle somewhat. I know that the, the critiques are very real and for good reasons, but, but I think it's important that you and I are having this discussion from within. You know, we were talking about, I, I love being a geek. I, am, I enjoy that. I love the celebration of it. I also think, and I think for a lot of our listeners, I, I'm hoping it's a part of why you're part of these conversations, the thing about what these movies can do is that they, they don't have to just reinforce the most toxic ideas of misogyny and masculinity and all this. The good movies, the good books, the good comic books, the good TV shows can actually be about challenging those in great ways. And I don't think that this movie was like a great step forward in terms of challenging those things, but it wasn't all about reinforcing them in terrible ways. And that's that was a real relief, you know? And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't super regressive. Yeah. The way that it very well could have been, uh, and so yeah, yeah, exactly, I agree. Yeah. And and I will say I'm also a little bit surprised because, given that we haven't seen a backlash yet, mm-hmm. like I have not yet heard a whole bunch of geeky fanboys going where you know why did they they tone down Wade Wilson so much you know why did they cuck him or whatever stupid language is used yeah. Wade and Watson yeah oh, yeah okay whatever the name is um, look I got like 17 cards on the table yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> anyone who's listening to this podcast knows I'm not going to be so good about names yes um, but 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 I and I think that's interesting I think that was something worth exp- I, 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 I'm going to want to pay attention to the media response to this movie in the weeks to come because it makes me wonder why is there not a backlash um, and I, I think I know some of the reasons, and I think it's because, you know, look at the things that caused backlash, and they almost all had women stars. And right. this movie still did get to have a man who saved the world, and maybe that's therefore it makes it okay. Um, but I don't know, I, I, I'll be curious to see what kind of media response there is, especially from, you know, some of the folks who maybe loved this movie for not the great, who loved the book, not for the greatest reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so, there's still time. There is yeah. still time for, for <laughs> that backlash to happen. Um, I am curious to see if anybody, um, has objections to, 
to Samantha getting the infiltration bit to her being the one who sacrifices herself to go inside behind enemy lines and, and try right. to get things done. Um, there's, I was I, worried when that happened that there was going to be like a damsel in distress situation, even though yeah. she was the one who made the conscious choice to, to make that sacrifice. And I was really glad that it was more of a, a saving yourself thing. The, the part later where they, they had that point of symmetry... Uh, where Wade shoots her avatar in the face. Yeah. I was not so happy about that, but... But I, but I got where it came from. And you're right, because at first, the way it's presented is she's just going to nobly sacrifice herself for him. And I was mm-hmm. like, are, are we watching a character fridge themselves? Yeah. Like, that right, was kind exactly. of my fear. Right. And when I realized that no... And I don't, like, it's a momentary decision she makes. I don't think she has this planned out. Right. But in, instead of it being, I'm going to nobly sacrifice myself for you, it's, I'm going to sacrifice myself temporarily and therefore put myself in a position that I can do all kinds of things that no one else can. And right. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. This I see where you went yep. here. Yep. This is much better. This is much more empowering. Um, yeah, so we're going to have to find some other terrible property that we can really use to dive into the problems. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about them a lot. But I... I like I said, I think this is a great example of how a podcast and, and a movie can really surprise us. Um, yeah. And I think to me, more than anything else, that's what I think I appreciated about this, is that we... And it's funny, because we've never before tried this thing of, let's record our thoughts and then do the rest. And at some level, I'm really regretting that we did. And at some level, I think it's perfect, because if, I think it's been really interesting to listen to all of this, because those first 15 minutes where we talked about all the things we were afraid of in this movie... Yep. Had nothing to do with the movie. Had, had basically, basically nothing whatsoever to do with it. I'm sure that anybody who listens to that opening bit, having seen the movie uh, and not read the book, would be like, "What are these guys talking about?" <laughs> yeah, that's what, very true. Are, did, is the book radically different? Did, did <laughs> Curtis Clyde have a stroke before he was consulted on this movie? And no, no, I think that it was just a case where um, Hollywood actually knows some of these things and made some really good decisions. And, and that's actually. You know, and if there's any reporters out there uh, and you get a chance to interview Ernest Klein, please ask him this question. I would love to know what happened to change it. Because I don't know if it's, I mean, given what Hollywood is going through right now. Granted, a lot of this movie was shot before Me Too started, but, mm-hmm. but that ethos has been building for a while. I can easily imagine that Spielberg or the producers or someone else said to Klein, like, look, you got a good book here, but you're kind of a sexist. We need to change some of it. I can also imagine that in the you know ten years or whatever since Klein wrote the book, that he's evolved somewhat, or that or that even just that he's taken to heart all of the critique that he heard, and maybe it's that he actually believes he was wrong in some of it, or maybe mm-hmm. he's just like, okay, they'll yell at me, so I'm going to change that part. I don't know, but yeah. I'd be fascinated to know because I think there is. I have rarely, you know, when. When we saw something like I said before about Luke Cage or, mm-hmm. or things like that, or when we didn't see it with Danny Rand, even though we wanted to, there was obviously a lot of discussion and the writers were clearly aware of the problems in the original media and made a conscious choice about whether or not to change them. Mm-hmm. I really want to know how did the choice get made sure. um, in this. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that as well. I'm not going to agonize too much over it because at the end of the day... Um, I was not convinced I was going to be like, hey, this is a movie that, uh, yeah, you should go see because it's a lot of fun. But it is. I th- I, it is a lot of fun. I was, I thought I was going to walk out of it being all like, I paid for two tickets and yeah. didn't enjoy myself. <laughs> and instead I'm like, all right, 
Movie tickets are expensive, so whatever, that's still upsetting, but at least I don't feel like I got ripped off. Yeah. It was a good time. Yeah. No, I, I, I would agree with that. And I, I, I think I enjoyed the movie less than you did, I think in part because... Because it, you enjoyed the book more. Well, I, I think that's part of it, mm-hmm. because it wasn't the things I wanted, and also because I don't enjoy this kind of movie. I mean, in part because so much of the movie was showing me video games that I hate. You know, like the whole race scene was just so frenetic, and I think for people who grew up loving those video games, that's probably a fantastic right. scene. To me, that scene was ten minutes of noise and lights, and I had no idea what the hell and was going on. As someone who avidly plays video games and really likes game trivia, I got a lot of of sort of fan service, I guess, in this yeah. in this movie. So, like. In a way, the movie pandered more to me than the book did, and like I'm responding better to it because there were fewer problematic elements. So it's all like you're trying to get me to buy in that I'm like these people, and I'm not because I'm not that jerk anymore. Yeah, and and I think that that's an important point because, and that's why to me I would say, I I don't think it's a bad movie. It just wasn't my movie. You yeah. know, in the same way I think, I think no matter what you think about the problematic parts, if you don't like '80s culture. There's no way you're going to enjoy the book Ready Player One. Yes, absolutely. And I, think I get frustrated when someone says, "Oh, I hate '80s culture, so this is a bad book, and you're bad for liking it." Like, no, the book is a celebration of something you're not into. Yeah. The movie wound up celebrating something different, mm-hmm. and it's something that I don't really enjoy being celebrated. So it didn't do as much for me. Sure. But but yeah, I thought it was. I wasn't bored. I wasn't. There were a couple of lines of dialogue that were so hackneyed and bad acting, but but for the most part, it was pretty good, and I. I certainly feel like there's a really interesting conversation to be had from this movie, mm-hmm. both about just the stuff it says in general, but also about the journey from the book to the movie. Right. So one last point we can talk about before we wrap things up. Uh, we've been going for for a bit, but um, there's we've talked, one might say to excess on this podcast, about how we love villains that makes sense, oh, right? God. Villains that have... <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know exactly where I'm going with this, but I'm going to complete this. Thought. Oh, the twirling yeah, of yeah, mustaches yeah, yeah. in this movie. Look, look <laughs> they, had, they had a mustache the size of a skyscraper, and they were twirling it with multiple Apache helicopters. <laughs> there was... <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that we, like... Villains that we can sort of see, yeah, this person's got a point. This is this makes sense. This character is someone that, like, I don't agree with what they're doing, but I I understand where they're coming from. Uh, in the very first exposure to oh to um, Nolan Sorrento uh, in in the boardroom, he's having his meeting, and he's all like, "Look, we can put." Up to 80% of their viewing space with advertisements and not induce seizures. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. You have no reason to be this this blatantly, stupidly evil. And, and I will say, it was one point where I thought they missed the mark a little bit because, and I think we said this in the intro part, that, that even in the book, the villain is ridiculous and stupid, but exactly in the way that 80s villains... But, but one of the things in that, in a lot of those 80s movies, like one of the common tropes is the evil of the nameless, faceless corporation. Right. And that none of the individual people involved are ever truly that terrible. It's that they all work for this huge conglomeration of evil and awfulness and corporateness. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the th- scenes in the book that I quite enjoy 
is where Wade says to 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 um, Sorrento, you know, or he basically says to Sorrento's bosses through Sorrento, okay, you want me to work for you? Fire Sorrento, get rid of him, destroy him, mm-hmm. bankrupt him, and I'll go to work for you. Right. And there's a long scene in which Sorrent in which Sorrento has to acknowledge that Sorrento's bosses are willing to do that, and they're willing to throw him under the bus. And it doesn't make Sorrento a victim, but it makes you a little bit sympathetic to him as someone who's like caught in this machine as much as anybody else. And then at the end of the day, he's not the epitome of evil. It's this nameless, faceless corporation, and we never meet any of them in a way that I thought was, was kind of effective. In the movie, mm-hmm. yeah. Wade does that same thing, yep. and Sorrento says, yeah, they're going to fire me but then immediately cuts off the conversation and just makes it about him one-on-one. Right. And I was like, you made Sorrento the bad guy instead of IOI? Right. And I thought that missed a little bit because a corporation twirling its mustache to me is at least a little more interesting because I have to feel like there is some person there, but I never get to see him, you know? Not so, like, that, but, but I don't know. I actually disagree with you. I think okay. it is better to have an individual villain because the for for the same reason that I appreciate it when our heroes are a a team that works together, I want a corporation not to be a team that works together toward an objective. I'm much happier when they are the 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 individual who is going to change the world mm-hmm. because that is a problem and something that I'd like that's not how reality works. We don't have this individual like savior who's going to change everything and fix everything. Yeah. Uh, that's how we get into the situations that we're in in this country. But uh, so for me, a a faceless corporation makes less sense as a villain because it's very abstract and because it it parallels too much the well. There are a collection of individuals coming to these decisions, and so like. It's harder for me to suspend my disbelief that nobody in that mixture is being like, you know, maybe we shouldn't be sending out people as a business to assassinate people. Maybe that's not a thing we should be doing. Well, but I think what I get, the idea that I get from the book is that the corporate headquarters isn't making that decision themselves. They're just creating the situation of you must do this, whatever it takes, and kind of having the blind eye. And that that's, because in the end, to me, I feel like, Yes, you get people like the Koch brothers who are just pure evil. But, like, you... I think most American corporations, a lot of the huge multinational ones, like, a lot of these huge multinational banks that just do, you know, destroy the housing market and are horrific and are are basically, like, acting in criminal ways to the economy, I don't think most of them have a CEO who's gleefully rubbing their hands. I think in most cases, the executives at most of those banks are probably... You know, people who think of themselves as halfway decent, it's that they're caught up in the corporate architecture and the corporate structure, which is constantly pushing for more and for bigger and for ignore the consequences, and that it's easy for individual people's morality to get lost in that. And that doesn't in any way excuse their actions, but I think it makes for a different kind of villain. And it's one that's harder to conquer. Yeah. Because it's harder, harder to deal with them because... You can't just cut the head off the snake. Right. And, and it's, it's Hydra. Yeah. And it's, it's harder to portray. And I get that why most movies don't do that. But I do like it that every now and then a movie does. And, and so I feel like I was a little disappointed there. But, the, but it takes a lot more to set up like this machine yeah. of individuals, all of which have... Bad, like You almost need to make that very central to your story to be able to sell 
here's this machine, and these each of these individual actors is not necessarily a bad person. Yeah, they're a victim fair. of circumstance, and each of them is sort of being a bad influence on each other. I would love to see a story like that. It sounds amazing. Uh, they do not have the time to do that in this in this fun yeah. video game called <laughs> Summer Blockbuster. But but I well, well there's still no, there's snow on the third winter blockbuster. <laughs> we're recording this in Wisconsin where, where summer is no longer something that will ever happen because it's April and there's snow on the ground. Um, and we're not bitter about that in the slightest. <laughs> no, we're just cold. Uh, yes, that too. Um, but no, I, and I think you're right. I think it gets to the point of yeah, that's probably one thing that I also thought was missing about this movie was it had I mean the worst Marvel villains were better than this villain. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I'd say overall... Um, well, okay, uh, Diamondback maybe not. Oh, uh, okay. From but, Luke Cage. Diamondback from Luke Cage was kind of meh. Yeah, but, but, but in a show that gave you um, both Cottonmouth and... Um, uh, yes, and uh, Black Mariah. Black Mariah. Yeah. Like that... Okay. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. we are so off on tangent, Bill, look, and we are look, so we, tired. Look, we really um, love Luke Cage, and we have to, in order to get that sweet, sweet Netflix Marvel money, we have to mention them. Also, if Zack Snyder did this movie, <laughs> what, what do you think you would think of it? Hey, I thought we were going to get to the end. I didn't make the Snyder reference this time. It's not my fault. I will also say it's that there... the contract. No, no, because look, there is a character in red who is often referred to as a denizen of a room in which you do a lot of cooking. And we have not mentioned him once, or the villain in his show, and we have not mentioned him, and we will not mention them. We have broken the streak. Daredevil so, Kitchen. Shut up! <laughs> we won't do it. I'm going to edit that out. Uh, I can't, because we're all on one feet. Anyway, if you can't tell, folks, we're kind of punch-drunk at the moment. We should probably call it. We should probably, call, we should probably go to our separate homes and go to sleep. Yes. Um... But this has been a great conversation. Um, uh, Jacob, any last words from you? Uh, mostly, I just want to just want to reiterate that again. I really liked the movie. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say is it. I, I would compare it honestly to Thor Ragnarok in terms of its actual impact on our our culture and our like. It's mostly candy. We yeah. also talked for about an hour and change on Thor Ragnarok. So, um, but. I'm not going to sit here and say it did like significant, interesting things for 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 ethics that our heroic characters are are struggling with or or interacting with. But I will say that um, I was happy that we went and saw it, and that I'm happy with all but the one change that I mentioned about a character yeah. not dying that died in in the book, uh, and that that's about it. Uh, yeah. I am curious though. If uh, people have different takes, if there's something that, that we missed, it's been like, Matthew, I know you said you had reread the book. Uh, uh, recently, I have not done that. Um, I did, as, as I mentioned in our uh, wrap-up podcast at the end of last year, uh, I did uh, listen to 372 pages, We'll Never Get Back. So <laughs> I got a, I got two Riff Tracks hosts uh, take on Ready Player One as they were reading through it like a book club. Mm -hmm. But I didn't actually go through and reread it myself. Yeah. So if there's something that, that I'm misremembering from the book that was radically different from the movie and a bad change, and our listeners would like to point that out to me, I am happy to learn. I, I would love to see that if there was something that I missed that was actually really good about the book, um, that, that I could then go, oh, well now when I go and see the movie, there's another thing that I can be critical of that they chose not to include this important thing. Yeah. 
I, and I would agree with that. I would say I, I'd be curious to that. Uh, and also I'd be curious uh, for you all who, if you did love the book and, and, and were disappointed in the movie, I want to hear from you. I, I also wonder, as I say all this, there's a voice in the back of my head that is going, is it possible that the bar has been set so low by this movie, by the book, that we're like, you know what? It, it wasn't as awfully misogynistic and bad as the book. Right. They were also missing the fact that it was a huge amount of misogyny or anything else so like that. So if you're not familiar missed... with the book and we're getting Stockholmed, yes. please let us know. <laughs> yeah. Email Superhero. If... Go tweet at Superhero Ethics. Yeah, you can tweet us and Facebook us at Superhero Ethics. Um, and, and also keep an eye on those two things because I'm going to try and – we're ending here with kind of a general question, but I'm really going to try and start putting out more specific questions. Um, I'll also say uh, specifically if you want to tweet at us about it, you can both um, – uh, use our, our, you know, at us at Superhero Ethics, but you can also hashtag Ready Player Ethics. Um, I think that's the hashtag I'm going to use to kind of, uh, to have our con- conversation continue about this book. I'm going to post a couple specific questions over the next week or two after you hear this. Um, let us know what you think. Let us know uh, if you loved it. Let us know if you hated it. Let us know what changes you loved, what changes you didn't. Um, on behalf of myself, on behalf of Jacob, uh, really glad for you guys listening. Uh, please keep tuning in. We'll have some more great podcasts coming up uh, in the next couple of months. We have uh, weeks. We have topics. We are planning on um, something about sidekicks. We're planning something about um, fan fiction and, and ownership of property. Uh, we're going to go back into the Way of Kings universe at, at some point, the, um, the, the uh, Sanderson books. Uh, we've got a lot of exciting things coming up, so stay tuned. Thanks very much, and have a good day.